Pipe Town landlubber. The scuttlebutt is that there's another great podcast in the offing, and by and large, it'll be chock-a-block full of so much surprising information, you'll be taken aback. I'm Cap'n Torrin, and I'll be your guide to nautical idioms and terminology. <laughs> get a few nautical terms out of the way before we get to the idioms themselves. Do you know what a fathom is? Well, it's a nautical unit of length, equal to six feet. It was once defined by an act of parliament as the lengths of a man's arms around the object of his affections. (laughs) The word derives from the Old English fathom, which means embracing arms. Flotsam and jetsam. Well, yes, you've seen these eels in the uh, Little Mermaid movie from Disney. Well, flotsam is a legal term that refers to wreckage of a ship and its cargo found floating on the water. It's often used in conjunction with jetsam, another word which refers to goods cast overboard deliberately, uh, which sink or wash ashore. The phrase flotsam and jetsam is used often to refer to useless or unimportant items or odds and ends. Well, you know that May Day is the distress call for voice radio. But do you know why? Well, let me tell you. The term was made official by an international telecommunications conference in 1948 and is an anglicizing of the French word May Day. Uh, which uh, I'll spell for you. M apostrophe A-I-D-E-Z, or Z, which means help me. Now you've heard the term keel hauling. But what is keel hauling? What was it? Well, do you know what a keel is? It's the longitudinal timber to which the rest of the boat's timbers are fixed, usually seen as a ridge along the middle of the hull. You might call it the spine of the boat. And you also need to know what a yardarm is. Well, if you think of the mast of a ship as a cross, the horizontal part is the yard, and the tip of the yard is the yardarm. So if Jesus, our old savior, was hanging on that cross, the yardarm would be where his hands were nailed. A naval punishment on board ships uh, said to have originated with the Dutch, but adopted by other navies during the 15th and 16th centuries, was keelhauling. A rope was rigged from yardarm to yardarm, passing under the bottom of the ship, and the unfortunate delinquent secured to it, sometimes with lead or iron weights attached to his legs. He was hoisted up to one yardarm and then dropped suddenly into the sea, hauled underneath the ship and hoisted up to the opposite yardarm, the punishment being repeated after he had had time to recover his breath. While he was underwater, a great gun was fired, which is done as well to astonish him so much the more with the thunder of the shot as to give warning until all others of the fleet to look out and be wary by his arms. Not sure what his arms are. The U.S. Navy never practiced keel hauling. Now that you know what a keel is, you can probably guess the origin of the phrase keel over, which means, of course, to fall or collapse suddenly. Well, a keeled over ship is something is a ship that had capsized or was laid on their side when it was on land 
either way with their keel showing. All right, let's get to the poop deck. <laughs> a poop deck is a deck at the rear of the ship. Aye, generally formed by the roof of a cabin. Now if a wave washes over this deck from behind the vessel, that deck is said to be pooped. Yes, that's right. So it's probably not, wasn't what you think. But while we're talking about poop, let's talk about the head. The head of a ship. Well, what is it? It's a toilet. The head of the ship is the ship's toilet. Because you see, in the nautical sense, the head refers to the bow or the fore part of the ship. And the ship's toilet was typically placed at the head of the ship near the base of the bowsprit, where splashing water served to naturally clean the toilet area. Only the captain had a private toilet uh, near his quarters at the stern of the ship in the quarter gallery. All right, let's get to the idioms. Down the hatch! There's an easy one. It's something you say when you're about to drink a flagon of ale or a yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum. Of course, in sea freight, cargoes are lowered into the hatch. So that makes perfect sense. And while we're talking about drinking, groggy. Groggy means dazed, weak, or unsteady, especially from illness, intoxication, sleep, or a blow. Grogram is a type of fabric that's a mix of silk and wool. Oh, it's a little itchy. So people don't wear grogram, grogram much anymore. It was once commonly used to make clothes, and a British admiral who ordered his sailors' rum to be diluted was nicknamed Old Grog because he wore a grogram cloak. And that mixture of a rum and water came to be known as grog. And if ye drink too much grog, ye become groggy. <laughs> but now, what if you're more than groggy? What if you're three sheets to the wind? Well, sheets aren't sails, as landlubbers might expect, but ropes, or occasionally chains. These are fixed to the sails to hold them in place. If three sheets are loose and blown about in the wind, then the sails will flap and the boat will lurch about like a drunken sailor. Sailors at that time had a sliding scale for drunkenness. Three sheets was the falling over stage. Tipsy was just one sheet in the wind, or a sheet in the wind's eye. Now, you remember that movie from 1984 with Kevin Bacon and that song by Kenny Loggins, Footloose. Well, let me tell you about Footloose. The common meaning is the ability to travel freely and act without responsibility or commitment. But the nautical origin, you see, the bottom portion of a sail is called the foot. And if it is not secured, it is foot loose, and it dances randomly in the wind. Batten down the hatches, which of course means to prepare for a difficulty or a crisis. Now hatches, more formally called hatchways, were commonplace on sailing ships and were normally either open or covered with a wooden grate to allow for ventilation on the lower decks. When bad weather was imminent, the hatches were covered with tarpaulin, and the covering was edged with wooden strips, known as battens, to prevent it from blowing off. Now, if you've watched Star Trek, The Next Generation, you may remember old Cap uh, uh, fucking Commander Riker saying, Belay that order! What does he mean by that? Pause. 
delay. Rhymes with belay. But he's not saying delay that order. He's saying belay that order with a B. Well, belay means to fasten or hold firmly. For example, fast to ground means stuck on the seabed. Made fast is tied securely. So to belay something is to make it fast, just tie it securely. A line around a fitting, usually a cleat or a belaying pin. Yes, a belaying pin, the short, the short movable bar of iron or hard wood to which running rigging may be secured or belayed. Belaying that order is kind of the nautical version of put a pin in it. Now what about hard and fast? You've heard of hard and fast rules, which means fixed and definitive. Not a guideline, it's hard and fast. Well, you know, a ship that was hard and fast was simply one that was firmly beached on land. That's all. But now, what about by and large? Yes, by and large, generally speaking. Well, this one's a little complicated. You see, when the wind is blowing from some compass point behind a ship's direction of travel, then it is said to be large. When the wind is in that favorable large direction. The largest square sails may be set, and the ship is able to travel downwind. By means in the general direction of. Sailors would say that to be by the wind is to face into the wind. So to sail by and large required the ability to sail not only as earlier square-rigged ships could do, that is, downwind, but also against the wind. Now you may think, but Cap'n... How could it be possible that a sailing ship could progress against the wind? Well, it involves the use of triangular sails, which act like aeroplane wings, and provide a force that drags the ship sideways against the wind. By this technique, and by careful angling of the rudder, the ship can make progress towards the wind. The 19th century windjammers like Cutty Sark were able to maintain progress by and large, even in bad wind conditions, by the use of many such aerodynamic triangular sails and large crews of able seamen. Chock-a-block, it means extremely full or jammed, crammed so tightly together as to prevent movement. Chock, that's C-H-O-C-K, a sort of wedge used to confine a cask or other weighty body when the ship is in motion. A block and tackle is a pulley system used on sailing ships to hoist the sails. It might be expected that chock-a-block is the result of wedging a block fixed with a chock, but that doesn't appear to be the case. The phrase described what occurs when the system is raised to its fullest extent, when there is no more free rope and the blocks jam tightly together. Well now... Friends, what if I told you I like to cut your jib? What the hell is a jib? Well, it's a triangular sail set between the fore topmast head and the jib boom. Some ships had more than one jib sail. In the 17th century, the shape of the jib sail often identified the vessel's nationality, and hence whether it was hostile or friendly. The term was being used figuratively by the 1800s, often to express like or dislike for someone. Well, now you've got the devil to pay. Does it mean Satan? Ho, ho, ho. You'd think it does. But it doesn't. It ain't. It's not that at all. Originally, this expression described one of the unpleasant tasks aboard a wooden ship. The devil was the ship's longest seam in the hull, 
and the seam most prone to leaking. Caulking was done with pay or pitch, which is a kind of tar. The task of paying the devil, or caulking the longest seam, by squatting in the bilges was one of the worst and most difficult jobs on board. So the term has come to mean a difficult, seemingly impossible task. The devil to pay and no pitch hot is uh, the full term. Landlubbers, having no seafaring knowledge, assumed it referred to Satan and gave the term a moral interpretation. Well, now, in the offing. Maybe you've never used this one. But let me tell you, the offing is the part of the sea that can be seen from land, excluding those parts that are near the shore. Someone who was watching out for a ship to arrive would first see it approaching when it was in the offing and expected to dock before the next tide. Something that is in the offing isn't happening now or even in a minute or two, but will inevitably happen before long. The phrase has migrated from its naval origin into general use in the language and is now used to describe any event that is imminent. Well, if you're a loud person, you may have been told to pipe down. Pipe down, now say. Well, it means to be quiet, doesn't it? On sailing ships, signals were given to the crew by sounding the bosun's pipe. Oh, by the way, bosun can be spelled like B-O-S-U-N, but that's actually a, a scrunching of the original word, which is spelled like boatswain, B-O-A-T-S-W-A-I-N, but pronounced bosun. Anyway, one such signal was piping down the hammocks, which was the signal to go below decks and retire for the night. When an officer wanted a sailor to be dismissed below, he would have him piped down. All right, what's the scuttlebutt? What's the rumor or gossip? What is the scuttlebutt? Well, the cask of drinking water on ships was called a scuttlebutt. And since sailors exchanged gossip when they gathered at the scuttlebutt for a drink of water, scuttlebutt became U.S. Navy slang for gossip or rumors. A butt, you see, was a wooden cask which held water or other liquids, and to scuttle is to drill a hole, as for tapping a cask. So it's kind of the old-timey version of water cooler talk. Now, do you know anyone who's finally shown their true colors? Well, early warships often carried flags from many nations on board in order to elude or deceive the enemy. The rules of civilized warfare called for all ships to hoist their true national ensigns before firing a shot. Someone who finally shows his true colors is acting like a man of war which hailed another ship flying one flag, but then hoisted their own when they got in firing range. Now, slush fund. Oh, you didn't know that was a nautical term, did you? You might know a slush fund as a reserve of money used for illicit purposes, especially political bribery. The word slush was coined in 17th century England as the name for half-melted snow, but a century later, there was an alternative meaning of slush, or slosh. The fat, or grease, obtained from meat boiled on board ship. Despite it not being the apex of culinary delight, it was considered a perk for ship's cooks and crew, and they sold the fat that they gathered from cooking meat whenever they reached port. This perquisite became known as a slush fund. 
this was the beginning of the meaning we now have for slush fund, which is money put aside to make use of when required. The use of such savings for improper bribes or the purchase of influence began in the U.S. 1894. All right, let's talk about towing the line. To tow the line, you've heard that one. Now, you might think it's T-O-W, to tow the line, like a tow truck. No, it's tow, T-O-E. Because you see, the space between each pair of deck planks in a wooden ship was filled with packing material called oakum and then sealed with a mixture of pitch and tar. The result from afar was a series of parallel lines a half foot or so apart running the length of the deck. Once a week, as a rule, usually on a Sunday, a warship's crew was ordered to fall in at quarters. That is, each group of men into which the crew was divided would line up in formation in a given area of the deck. To ensure a neat alignment, of each row, the sailors were directed to stand with their toes just touching a particular seam. Another use for these seams was punitive. The youngsters in a ship, be they ship's boys or student officers, might be required to stand with their toes just touching a designated seam for a length of time as punishment for some minor infraction of discipline, such as talking or fidgeting at the wrong time. A tough captain might require the miscreants to stand there not talking to anyone in fair weather or foul for hours at a time. Hopefully he would learn it was easier and more pleasant to conduct himself in the required manner rather than to suffer the punishment. From these two uses of deck seams comes our cautionary word to obstreperous youngsters to toe the line. Now maybe when you're listening to this, you're feeling a bit under the weather, suffering an illness. Well, let me tell you, keeping watch on board sailing ships was a boring and tedious job. But the worst watch station was on the weather, which means windward, side of the bow, the bow being the front. The sailor was assigned to this state. The sailor who was assigned to this station was subject to the constant pitching and rolling of the ship. By the end of his watch, he would be soaked from the waves crashing over the bow. A sailor who was assigned to this unpleasant duty was said to be under the weather. Sometimes these men fell ill and died as a result of the assignment, which is why today under the weather is used to refer to suffering an illness. A related theory claims that ill sailors were sent below deck or under the weather if they were feeling sick. All right, just a couple more. Squared away, arranged or dealt with in a satisfactory manner. You see, a square rig is a generic type of sail and rigging arrangement in which the primary drive and sails are carried on horizontal spars which are perpendicular or square to the keel of the vessel and to the masts. On square-rigged vessels, when the state of the sails were properly trimmed, it means they were squared away. Taken aback? Are you taken aback by all this nonsense? Well, the first to be taken aback were not people, but ships. The sails of a ship are said to be aback when the wind blows them flat against the masts and spars that support them. If the wind were to suddenly turn so that a sailing ship was facing unexpectedly into the wind, the ship was said to be taken aback. I would be remiss if I didn't mention shiver me timbers. 
while timbers, of course, are the wooden support frames of a sailing ship. And in heavy seals, ships will be lifted up and pounded down so hard as to shiver the timbers. Such an exclamation was meant to convey a feeling of fear and awe. And finally, anchors away. How do you spell away? That's my question to you. Well, have you said A-W-E-I-G-H? You've got it right. Away basically means to heave, hoist, or raise. An anchor that is away is one that has just begun to put weight onto the rope or chain by which it is being hauled up. Sailors were fond of adding A to words to make new ones. For example, astern, aboard, ashore, afloat, adrift, aground, and aback, as previously mentioned. So I hope I've showed you the ropes when it comes to nautical terminology and idioms. Now I'm off to chow down on some hardtack and a bottle of rum. When we last left our heroes... You stand before a decrepit old wizard. Adventurers, your next quest is to convince the listener to subscribe to the Dungeons & Dragons live play podcast, Adventure.exe. Roll initiative. All right, so uh, so I think what Rufus, the uh, human bard, is going to do is he's going to uh, offer a bribe. Yeah, a bribe. Uh, everyone, empty out your pockets. Oh, come on. Uh, all I've got is uh, some buttons and some lint. But if I put you're going to bribe, you should use your own money. Well, I, I put up my buttons. I don't know what more you want. How much could a bribe cost? A hundred gold? Two hundred? Polly, do you have any money on you? Yeah, I don't have any money, but I, I can cast friends. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll uh, give you a bardic inspiration to your friends. I'll uh, I'll do some farting noises <laughs> to give you inspiration. Could you cast friends on like everybody who's listening like, yeah. all at once? Yeah, DM. I'm going to cast friendship on everybody who's listening. So they subscribe to our podcast. Yeah, and source all those bastards. You've worn down the listeners with your ridiculous shenanigans. And our magic. And and magic, and also bribery. <laughs> the universal language. <laughs> they go to their podcast service of choice and subscribe to Adventure.exe. You all level up. Yeah! yeah! I'm going to steal my money back. I will now read for you. From Naval History and Heritage Command, history.navy.mil. A Brief History of Punishment by Flogging in the U.S. Navy. I don't have an author on this. Warnings against the excessive use of flogging were written as early as 1797 by Captain Thomas Truxton and in 1808 by Surgeon Edward Cutbush. A proposal to abolish flogging was first introduced in Congress in 1820 by Representative Samuel Foote, but it was unsuccessful. Congressman Foote was the father of Andrew Hull Foote. Oh, that's interesting. Congressman Foote is F-O-O-T, but Andrew Hull Foote, his son, F-O-O-T-E, Foote, who was later an admiral in the Civil War. In 1831, Secretary of the Navy Levi Woodbury issued an order that said, until Congress changed the existing laws governing punishment in the Navy... Whenever such laws allowed a discretion in the use of punishments, he recommended that in the case of seamen, commanding officers should first resort to fines and badges of disgrace and other forms of mild corrections rather than using the humiliating practice of whipping. Later, 
Secretary of the Navy James K. Paulding issued an order to commanding officers that flogging was to be administered in according with the law and always in the presence of the captain. Oh, James K. Paulding. The New York Evening Star newspaper praised Secretary Paulding's action. It also reprinted some material from the Norfolk Herald concerning the arrival of the sloop of war Vandalia in Norfolk after a cruise in the Gulf of Mexico under Captain Uriah P. Levi, or Levy, L-E-V-Y. The Herald noted that Captain Levy had kept his ship in prime condition without the use of flogging. The story told of Levy's system discipline, Levy, Levy's system of discipline, I think that's a typo, and substitutes for the lash, including badges of disgrace. The editorial of the Evening Star on Levy and material from the Norfolk Herald were reprinted without comment in the January 1840 issue of the magazine Army and Navy Chronicle. But Lieutenant George Mason Hooey, that's H-O-O-E, brought charges against Levy for scandalous and cruel conduct unbecoming to an officer and a gentleman in ordering a substitute punishment for a boy in the ship. The boy, who was 16 to 18 years of age, was charged with mimicking an officer of the ship. Yes. Unwilling to flog the boy, Levy ordered him tied to a gun with his trousers lowered. Okay, well, a small quantity of tar, variously described as the size of a silver dollar to the size of a man's head, was applied with oakum. Uh, oakum is, uh, as mentioned in the previous segment, it's, uh, sh- it's like, I guess it's kind of like a hemp rope kind of a thing. Let's see. Let's see what the actual definition is here. Loose fiber obtained by untwisting old rope, especially used in caulking wooden ships. Gotcha. Okay, great. So yes, a small quantity of tar variously described as the size of a silver dollar to the size of a man's head was applied with oakum to his buttocks, along with some parrot feathers. Parrot feathers. It's true. (laughs) The legends are true. Levy was tried by a court-martial and sentenced to be dismissed from the service. President John Tyler reviewed the findings. He said that Levy had acted within the spirit of Secretary Woodbury's order. While Levy had resorted to an entirely disgraceful punishment, his motives were good. The punishment drew no blood and caused no harm. Tyler reduced Levy's sentence to a 12-month suspension. The court-martial of Levy probably made many other officers unwilling to employ substitutes for flogging. Oh, lordy. Levy continued to oppose the practice and reportedly wrote newspaper articles on the subject. Other line officers who opposed the use of flogging were Captains Robert F. Stockton, Lawrence Kearney, and John C. Long. Meanwhile, Men who identified themselves as former sailors were presenting their views to the public. In 1840, William M. Morell published a book entitled Cruise of the Frigate Columbia Around the World. In it, he recounts how men received 12 lashes for trivial offenses, such as having dirty pots or failing to close the door of a toilet. He himself received 12 lashes for failing to properly mark a piece of clothing and for accidentally spilling ink on the deck. Morell condemned the flagrant use of authority, but he believed that flogging should be retained for some offenses, such as stealing. The year 1840 also saw the publication of Richard Henry Dana's Two Years Before the Mast, in which he recounted such his experience as a merchant sailor in the brig Pilgrim. 
He presented a description of a terrible flogging on the ship in 1839 and of living under tyranny in the ship. But in the last chapter, he doubted the expediency of abolishing flogging. In 1841, a former enlisted man named Solomon Sandborn, born in the sand, published a pamphlet entitled An Exposition of Official Tyranny in the United States Navy, which set forth instances of the abuse of various regulations by officers and called for the abolition of flogging. Other former enlisted men also published accounts of their naval service and of abuses of authority by officers. In the public mind, especially in the North, the practice of flogging was often associated with the treatment of convicts and slaves, and it was believed to be contrary to the democratic spirit of the times and the ideals of the United States. Support for this view came from William McNally, who claimed to be a former sailor. In 1839, he published a work on evil island abuses in the naval and merchant service, in which he argued that sailors were treated worse than slaves. Oh, he cited instances where more than the legal number of lashes were inflicted on floggings. Mm, yes. He also argued that flogging kept Native American men from joining the Navy. This, in turn, led to a shortage of manpower in the Navy and merchant service, which led both to resort to using foreign-born sailors. Reformers said that if American citizens were decently treated, they would be more likely to serve in both the Navy and merchant service. Such reformers also argued that the Navy's daily issue of grog, or whiskey mixed with water, was the source of many of the disciplinary problems. Therefore, if the grog ration were abolished, there would be less need for flogging. If flogging was abolished, the service would be more attractive to American men. The American Seamen's Friend Society, or ASFS, a religious-based organization, was in the forefront of the movement to eliminate grog and flogging. And grogging. It included among its membership some naval officers. In the 1840s, a number of civilian groups began to petition Congress to abolish flogging. One reflection of this movement came in 1847, when John P. Hale of New Hampshire was elected to the Senate by an anti-slavery party. Earlier, Hale had served as a Democratic representative from New Hampshire, and in 1844 and 1845, he introduced amendments to bills that would abolish flogging in the Navy. These efforts were unsuccessful. Following his return to Washington, he announced to the Senate his intention to abolish flogging. Between December 1849 and June 1850, the Senate received 271 petitions from the citizens of various states urging the end of flogging. In 1850, the Secretary of State sent an inquiry to a number of naval officers asking for their opinions on whether flogging and grog could be eliminated without damage to the Navy. Of the 84 replies received by the Secretary, only seven officers thought that flogging should be discontinued. Therefore, when Senator Hale succeeded in getting a law passed in September 1850 abolishing flogging in the Navy and Merchant Marine, there were a number of naval officers who thought that the legislation was misguided. Of course, because they're doing the flogging. Meanwhile, in March 1850, Herman Melville's novel White Jacket, or The World in a Man of War, was published. It contained a chapter on flogging and others on its evil effects and unlawful use. He called for its abolition. Some naval officers took exception to Melville's remarks and wrote rebuttals, a few which were published in newspapers or pamphlets. This effort was decisively defeated after a speech in the Senate in 1851 by Senator Robert F. Stockton of New Jersey, a former Navy captain. 
Naval officers had to adjust to new conditions, and there was increased pressure on Congress to enact new regulations. In March 1855, Congress passed a law for the more efficient discipline in the Navy. This established a system of summary court-martials for minor offenses. It could sentence guilty men to a solitary confinement, with or without single or double irons, and or a diet of bread and water for a limited time. It could also give bad conduct discharges. In 1862, Congress gave the force of law to a major revision of all Navy regulations that reflected a more progressive view of discipline. Oh, oh, there's a note on the bottom. In September 1846, after the death of his father, Andrew Hull Foote added an E to his last name. That is an actual footnote, friends. Hey, it's Sarah from Adventure EXE. Why not tell your friends about Torn's Guide to Everything? If you have ideas for future episodes, questions, or just want to complain, well, you're going to have to go and like the Facebook page, subscribe to Torn Atkinson's YouTube channel, and tweet him at, at Thickets. And if you like this content, go to patreon.com slash Atkinson and throw him a couple of your Earth dollars. Torin would love it. Music generously provided by Thomas Falk. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the internet.